0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Bienvenidos to Encuentros Políticos, political encounters, on an online radio show and podcast from Usula Media in Philadelphia. Amirun Mayorga, PhD, in collaboration with Haymarket Books and Black Lives Matter at School, we are delighted to be hosting this evening's conversation, Black Lives Matter at School, Philly Edition. I wanted to also take a moment to recognize that we are gathered on Unseated Turtle Island. The lands of a vast and diverse set of indigenous peoples that have called this continent home from time immemorial. I ask you to join me in acknowledging these communities, their elders, both past and present, as well as future generations. I invite us all to acknowledge that the places we call home or school are founded upon exclusion and erasures of indigenous peoples, including those on whose lands we are on here in Philadelphia, the Lenape and the Lenape people. This acknowledgement signals my commitment to engaging in the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and giving the land back. I invite all of us to consider the ways in which we can learn more about and support decolonial and land back work being accomplished around the world and wherever you may be. Now, for this evening's event, Late last year, Haymarket Books published Black Lives Matter at School, An Uprising for Educational Justice, edited by Jesse Hagopian and Denisha Jones. As Haymarket notes, the book succinctly generalizes lessons from successful challenges to institutional racism that have been won through the Black Lives Matter at School movement. To discuss the book, Struggles Against Systemic Racism in Schools how we can win real educational justice and the lessons from Black Lives Matter at school, organizing in Philadelphia and beyond. I'm pleased to have education active, educators, activists, Tamara Anderson, Jesse Hagopian, Ismael Jimenez, and Dana Morrison. Um, briefly, Jesse Hagopian is a member of the National Black Lives Matter at school steering committee and teaches ethnic studies at Seattle's Garfield High School. He's a co-editor of Black Lives Matter at school an editor for Rethinking Schools Magazine, and is a co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives. Tamara Anderson is an advocate for children and teens, an anti-racist trainer, a professional artist, an editor, a freelance journalist, and a blogger with over 20 years of experience as an educator. I don't know how she has time for all of this. She supervises middle and high school pre-service teachers at LaSalle University and serves as an adjunct at Westchester University, Her work with Juvenile Justice led to her being the recipient of the Leeway Foundation Art and Change Grant. Ismael Jimenez, is a dedicated educator who for the last 15 years has worked with students in Philadelphia from preschool age to high school. Ishmael assisted in the development of the updated social studies curriculum for the school district of Philadelphia. Ishmael is a core member of the Racial Justice Organizing Committee, RJOC, and Black Lives Matter Philly, a founding member of the Melanated Educators Collective and a co-founder of the Philadelphia Black History Collaborative. And finally, Dana Morrison is an assistant professor at Westchester University's Department of Educational Foundations and Policy Studies. She began working on higher education outreach for the Week of Action in Philadelphia in 2017 and has since organized BLM events with students, faculty, and staff throughout the PA system of the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. Welcome all of you. If there's time, I'd love to just emphasize the higher education, or I'm sorry, Let me move ahead Um, and what I wanted to do actually is um, to start with all of you, I'm sorry, to start with Jesse in talking a little bit about the book and um, the origins of the BLM at school movement. So
1: um, take it away. Thank you so much, Edwin. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you and on your program and it's a real honor to be with all of these warriors for educational justice uh, and social justice from Philly who transform the world with their with their actions. And so I am excited for this conversation and it's an urgent conversation that is needed in our time where we see COVID destroying communities and especially black communities, BIPOC communities uh, where we see white supremacists parading through uh, untouched by police in the Capitol building, um, taking selfies with police officers, um, watching police open the gates for them to take over our Capitol. Uh, We know that white supremacy is infused into every aspect of this nation, including our schools and as educators, we are fighting back. And that's really what this book was all about, was collecting the stories of some incredible people from around the country who have been building this struggle for racial justice for for years, and specifically the Black Lives Matter at School movement. And so I want to share a little bit of the book with you and talk about the origins of uh, the struggle. And then I can't wait to get schooled on all of the work going on in Philly. But I'll start with what I wrote in the book. And I began with a quote from a student named Marche Doss, who's an organizer with Students Deserve in Los Angeles, that's done incredible work. And Marche said this, How do you make Black Lives Matter in school when the whole system wasn't even built for us? I'll tell you how. You tear it down and you build it into something that is made for us. And so that's what we're doing, step by step, policy by policy, person by person. We're tearing it down and rebuilding it into a system that is meant to make sure that Black Lives Matter in schools. And then I wrote this. This book is the story of how black lives matter cry for freedom, hopped on the yellow bus, walked through the schoolhouse door, occupied the gymnasium, rallied in the auditorium, ripped up the textbook and took over the daily lesson plan. The black lives matter at school movement is the story of resistance to racist curriculums, educational practices and policies. This is the story of educators, students, parents, and community members defying the threats of violent white supremacists, as the account of the movement in Seattle will reveal in the pages to come, and the story of an uprising to uproot the racist policies and curriculum that are bound up in the American system of schooling. This is the story of how visionary educators and the Caucus of Working Educators took Seattle's action to a new level, by transforming it from a single day into a week and then launched a national movement. This is the story of students in Minneapolis who had begun organizing for years and then in the wake of the horrific murder of George Floyd organized a powerful campaign that resulted in the removal of police from the Minneapolis public schools. This is the story of students in Vermont hoisting a Black Lives Matter flag on the flagpole This is the story of Boston teachers union leaders publicly defending their week of action against an attack by Boston police. This is the story of creating anti-racist lesson plans and wearing shirts that say black lives matter as educators lead students in discussions to affirm black identity. In short, this is the story of bold action against anti-blackness in elementary schools, junior highs and high schools around the country. And it really all got started from one elementary school, John Muir Elementary School in Seattle. And it was the summer, uh, it was the school year after the summer when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile got killed in 2016. And the educators at John Muir Elementary had formed a racial equity committee and they wanted to start the year off in September making sure their black students know they were loved and supported in, the, in this dangerous and scary and traumatizing time. And so they wanted to organize an event to show their love for their students. And they partnered with a group called Black Men United to change the narrative and the school PTA. And they got black families to commit to coming to school that day, standing out front and high-fiving all the youth as they come in to school. And they also wanted to hold a celebration and a a forum on black culture and history at the school that day. And the art teacher, a wonderful teacher named Julie Trout designed a shirt that said, Black Lives Matter, we stand together with a beautiful picture of a tree, the many branches coming down into the the trunk um, of solidarity. And then websites like Breitbart and Blue Lives Matter got a hold of the fact that educators wanted to love their black students and publicly declare their support for them. And the letters just came streaming in to John Muir Elementary School, just vitriol spewing at the school because of this action. And then one particularly hateful person made a bomb threat against an elementary school, simply because they wanted to publicly affirm the lives of black children. And the school district officially canceled the event at that point. And they brought in bomb sniffing dogs that morning to see if the the threat was going to be carried through. To the credit of the wonderful educators like Deshaun Jackson, who helped organize that event, Uh, They went through with it anyway, but the problem was because it had been officially canceled and the threat, it was much smaller than it would have been. And that just broke my heart. And I wanted to see how I could support them. And my friend and colleague, uh, Professor Wayne Au's son, went to that school. And so he put me in touch with the educators there. And we invited them to a meeting of the social equity educators, uh, the rank and file caucus in our union. And we came up with a plan to uh, support them. And we knew that if our union was really going to support, it wasn't enough to just say, pass a resolution that says we support what they did at John Muir, because we knew if we really supported them, we would all wear a shirt that says Black Lives Matter to school. Right. And so our resolution came to the floor, and I was very nervous that if this didn't pass, that would send a message to our youth that S- Seattle's educators weren't willing to publicly say this, that their lives have value. And so, thankfully, um, some incredible Black women shared their stories of painful experiences in school uh, that really moved the hall. And the vote passed unanimously to make October 19th, Black Lives Matter at School Day, and call on every educator to wear the shirt and teach lessons about institutional racism and the struggle. But then our real struggle emerged because we knew it's one thing to pass a resolution in the union hall, but what happens when October 19th comes? How many teachers are really gonna wear those shirts? And if they don't wear them, that will send a message to our black youth as well. So we knew we needed to organize. And The social equity educators and the Seattle Education Association worked together, and uh, we we drew in the Seattle NAACP and the Black Student Unions uh, and the Seattle PTSA. We held press conferences. We organized. We got um, a T-shirt distribution operation up and going, and the orders started coming in first by the ones and twos, then by the dozens, then by the hundreds, We ended up selling over 2000 T-shirts to Seattle educators and many schools made their own shirts. So we had somewhere in the range of 3000 educators on October 19th, coming to school, wearing the shirts and just an eruption of solidarity. And many of those teachers using the day to teach about the Black Lives Matter movement and the long black freedom struggle. And that long black freedom struggle is really what we are a part of right now. And, and we're helping to really grab a torch from, from so many uh, incredible organizers around the country and throughout history. And I'll just end with the dedication to our book. And we wrote in the dedication... To the black children of the future who will one day all be taught the epic story of how black people finally got free and who will grow up knowing that their lives matter at school and everywhere else. that's really what this struggle is all about. And it was just one of the happiest moments of my life to see the Philly educators take what we had done and transform it and bring it to the next level and make this a national movement. So I'm forever in your debt uh, for doing that. And um, it's just really incredible to be with you all today.
0: Thanks, Jesse. Thank um, yeah. um, so we've got, we've got noise. noise. Uh, 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 resistance uh, happening on the West Coast and now we're bringing it to the East Coast here. Um, with our Philadelphia folks, a home of, of black radical tradition um, and activism from the rip. Um, and so I'm, I'm pleased to have our, our, our Philly based folks here. Um, and and, you know, building off of what Jesse has um, really laid out for us, I want to hand it over to you all to tell us a little bit about um, the origin story here um, and, you know, really, what did this look like in the district, in higher education uh, and in our, in our classrooms? Um, maybe Tamara, we could start with you.
2: Certainly, 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 so, um, I would say that, uh, of course, what it started with the email. So an email from Charlie McGeehan, who was mentioned in the book, came to the Racial Justice Organizing Committee. and he was like, do you see what's happening in Seattle? You see what just happened in Seattle? What, what's happening? Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, what can we do? And of course, uh, it was me, Ishmael, Shaw, and we decided to get on a call. <laughs> we got on a call immediately. It was like, okay, let's let's figure this out. So we get on the call. And during that call, it became very much like shirts and what can we do to support? And I was like, well... There's jacked up stuff happening here in Philly (laughs) every day to our children and our families. And it needs to it needs to be something for us here, too. Right. Like what what do we want to say here? And so kept going back and forth and forward. The very next meeting, I brought the 13 guiding principles and it was like, what? Where are these come from? I said, well, who who thunk? But the same year that all the crazy has happened, Black Lives Matter Global Network came up with these very comprehensive principles. All that cool, queer, trans affirming, trans affirming, globalization, intergenerational, my favorite, unapologetically black, because I don't know any other way to be except for that, right? So the thing is, is then we have these principles. So then let's 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 build something. Let's build across these principles. Let's think of how we can have a week of action. I, I talked about that in the in the chapter that I pulled together about why a week of action. And it was really important to say a week of action because as a parent, as somebody who used to teach for a long time but has transitioned into higher ed. I know what it's like sometimes for parents to not feel inclusive when they hear school, right? When they hear school, they hear education, Like, oh, that's for them, right? We wanted this to be for us, for all of us, for parents, for educators, for the community, for grassroots organizers, for students, right? We wanted to, to represent all of us. And so we um, came up with an FAQ because of course the quick thing was like, What's gonna happen? People start saying, you know, my husband's a cop, and I don't, you know, what, what, you no, know, I don't really think, oh, 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 and all this other stuff. Or I'm not sure if young children should learn about this. This seems really divisive, you know. Okay, that's exactly how they sound in my head, so I just got up to do that. So that's uh, that's how it is. So then we're like, okay, um, let's let's give a guide, which now has become like the DLM starter kit, right? Um, and then of course we get. Chris Rogers on board, who's going, you know, they're talking about this tomorrow, actually, about curriculum and all sorts of stuff. And we, the the, the principals really created a, a pillar, a blueprint for us to follow, not just for curriculum, but for how we want the movement to look, like how we wanted to organize events. And so, of course, it made me um, very excited later down the road after free, um, so the uh, Caucus Working Educators did a conference in Baltimore, yes, the summer of 2017. Um, free Minds, Free People Conference. Free People, Free Minds, I've always reversed that. Do not, it don't blame it on my my brain and not my spirit if I did that. Okay, and basically at that conference, um, other cities were like, what? What is this? Like, how can we be a part of this? And how can we bring this to our schools and to our school district or to our union, right? So then we started sharing information and then I, literally organically, the, the National Steering Committee was birthed kind of out of that. Right. And then you had basically all these amazing individuals that came together, and even making the conscientious choice that the Steering Committee should always be black, indigenous people of color to lead. Like even if it was just three of us at the time, and now it's more, right? That that per- makes a purposeful statement, right? And that that makes the work very purposeful. So um, that is how it started. But you know, here in Philadelphia, our union has not openly supported this work at all. The Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. And um, even though we have had the Philadelphia City Council has openly supported it, Um, even just recently the school board of Philadelphia just recently um, said, yeah, we're going to support this and we're going to put the curriculum on our website. (laughs) So all of these wins still shine a bright light on the very union that hires, helps hire and facilitate the very educators that are working with our black and brown children, right? Like there is a disconnect. There is like that elephant running around the room that, that, that has to be discussed, right? Like, why is that a thing, right? What is that based on? Um, and, and now, you know, the Racial Justice Organizing Committee is has moved oh, from under the umbrella of the Caucus of Working Educators like, how does that work? Where does that work continue? Where does, how does that work continue to define and to delineate what racial justice really should look like in our communities and schools and for our students, especially this last summer where our students um, basically hit the streets and were like, we know we don't just want police out of our schools. We also want to talk about these racist educators that are in our schools, too. Right. And this racist curriculum and how I feel when I come into a school and, you know, I'm told that I'm nothing or I'm told that I shouldn't be there. Right. You know, a bright light has been like shining on this. And so one thing that, you know, and, you know now as I finally get a chance to really read all the stories from across the country, it you know, similar to like really to, to repeat what Jesse said, it just. We used to always hear these stories in our meetings, like our debriefs, but I think like to see them written now and side by side, right? What we see is, you know, the U.S. continues to have a problem with us. And what we are discovering year after year is that we are not waiting for somebody to come and scoop in and save us. We are creating the work and the agitation and the resistance for if you don't want to save us so you don't want to be a part of this process, we will make sure you are embarrassed and called out and shined on until you are so embarrassed, you have to go back into the dark from whence you came. Right. And that is, you know, that is like, I think, the power and beauty of Philly, right. Um, the, the inter, the intersectionality of the work, um, you know, the fact that we are not just we are talking about how white supremacy permeates everything, right? How it is the thing as opposed to, you know, in our anti-racism and bias training, you know, we now do mutual aid with groceries from Philly. There's a lots of work that come out of when you switch your lens to a racial justice lens. And for many of us to be very clear, that started in 2000. That started December 2016 when we sat down, and decided to really plan and do this work.
0: Ishmael, I I, I wanted to thank you, Tamara. I, I think the I want to come back to abolition and pre and the police-free schools work um, that's happening right now and how this connects. Um, but I wonder, I was wondering, Ishmael, if you could talk a little bit about what this work has looked like in the classroom. Um, and, and perhaps that be the way to kind of bring us back into the conversation. And, and I would love to hear from Dana as well around um, you know, what this work looks like right now. But, um, but let's like, you know, look back a little bit and um, what did this work look like in the classroom?
3: Well, um, like everybody said, I just wanna say, I'm always humbled to be in the same place with all y'all folks. Um, It just shows that, you know, the connection and the vibration and energy that people bring to it, we kind of attract uh, to one another. So I definitely want to uplift that. Um, So for in the classroom as a teacher, I've been blessed enough uh, to teach African-American history uh, most of my teaching career, which is a mandatory subject uh, that students have to pass in order to graduate in Philadelphia. Which is unique than any other place within the nation. And a lot of folks are actually in that fight right now for ethnic studies or for an African American history uh graduation requirement. So I definitely want to highlight the fact that when this idea, when we discussed this idea for uh Black Lives Matter week at school, um, that was the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, well, I already do that every single day. You know, <laughs> I don't even think I remember saying that to Tamara at the time, like, oh yeah, that's easy. Like, I don't know how to differentiate what to do exactly, but then I definitely want to uplift the fact that the principles that were developed at that time kind of brought it to uh, more fruition and allowed me as an educator and other educators to kind of focus our energy on those days and kind of like take it away from, uh, for me, the historical type of timeline that exists, but also encourage other folks, other teachers who I work with who don't teach history, who don't teach African-American history to kind of uplift it themselves. Um, So in the classroom, This looked like pulling from the curriculum resources that were developed that year that folks were sharing with one another. Um, I know that I purposely uh, did one for um, uh, black women uh, around Talib Kweli's redoing of uh, four women um, looking at the song and then really like parsing out the lyrics and kind of uplifting those stories, those untold stories that really represents kind of the untold story of, uh, you know, black people within America. Which is usually, you know, movements are led by Black women who are usually erased from that storyline. So, like, that type of thinking was kind of at the forefront of what we were talking about. And even when we, the first Black Lives Matter week in Philadelphia, now I just have to uplift this all the time, we purposely made it in the last week of January because we did not want to take away from Black History Month. Um, We didn't want to confuse the two at first. Of course, when it became national, we had to into account everybody's schedule and, and it moved into February. But I definitely wanna highlight the fact that we recognize that Black Lives Matter week within itself in the very beginning represented something larger and something different um, from Black History uh, Month. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to respect the legacy that Carter G. Woodson uh, left for us with you know, Negro Achievement Week, which became Black History Month in 1976. Um, so during that, as an, as an educator and organizing folks, uh, convincing, uh, folks to wear t-shirts, there was actually a lot of pushback. Um, a lot of teachers, even within the caucus of working educators, like, oh, I'm not sure if we should do that. I'm not saying no names. Um, but folks were, (laughs) were not like, it wasn't like hundred percent on board. Um, and a lot of people like, "Oh, I support you and I'll, I'll buy the shirt, but they never wore the shirt in school. And there were certain school administrators that actually went out their way to prevent teachers from organizing in their schools, from wearing t-shirts. And of course, like you know, the veggie back off of what Jesse was saying earlier. What they did uh, around in in Seattle, like, well, do you really respect your black students then? Like, how can you look them in the face and say that you respect them, but you're afraid to take a political stance? Now in Philadelphia. You know it's a, a city of neighborhoods right so of course in certain areas of North Philly it was much easier easier to organize folks to support this and and be unapologetically in support but in other places the Northeast you know and 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 parts of South Philly and some magnet schools there was a lot of pushback um, We've even received death threats from calls I know Charlie McGee at the youth school received death threats from like Arkansas um, and this was the first year. And for us, it was just like, we just want to uplift this. We just want to do these curriculum pieces. But one of the most beautiful things that came out of that, not only within the classroom, was our idea that we need to make this intergenerational. Um, We need to involve parents. We need to involve the community, that we can't simply dialogue with ourselves in a vacuum or in a bubble or in a silo. Um, So our events that we planned, we have planned events outside of school at the same time, in schools. I remember we showed 13th at Steele Elementary in Nicetown. Um, if you're familiar with Philadelphia, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we also did other events that were able to bring in folks who normally aren't dialoguing with each other about these larger issues and introduce them to these principles like uh, Tamara was saying were just developed earlier in 2016, less than a year before we started introducing Black Lives Matter Week at action, of Action. So when that was all going down, you know, I've had many conversations with teachers at my school, um, and I was very surprised how easily folks moved when you actually engaged them with intellectual honesty. About what is the motivation behind this? Where does the story come? Like I remember at that year when I would talk to other fellow educators about this, I would mention the story, of what happened in Seattle first. Did you hear about that? Read this article that Jesse wrote. You know, Jesse, I was throwing your article all around that place. Um, and, and that conversation led people to really take the risk. Um, I know for a fact though, that it also came with consequences. There were teachers that got reprimanded for organizing it in their school. I know for a fact that I was denied a job opportunity at a school in the school district when I wanted to change schools simply because of my organizing at that time. And this is the reality of doing it. Like right now, like we can all feel warm and fuzzy about what we've created, but at the beginning, it was a struggle and it wasn't a popular idea. And I, I think that speaks volumes to what we really know what it is. Because as soon as people get comfortable with this, we know we need to step up our game a little bit and emphasize and uplift really the the, uh, shoulders of the ancestors in which we stand upon. And nobody was apologetic about it, from Satima Clark to Ella Baker, you know the people that really laid the foundation to our thinking when we talk about education, and then also community building, and also organizing, and also bringing these things to the forefront of people to talk about, sometimes uncomfortably, but necessarily. And so in Philadelphia, we were able to bring in Mike, Malcolm Jenkins at our, uh, who was you know the Eagles football player at our last panel. We were able to, uh, we had the involvement of uh, now Councilwoman uh, Kendra Brooks. Uh, So like we were like laying a foundation of politics in Philadelphia that really has bubbled up even further, even from there. Um, So as a classroom teacher, it's super exciting because like I I pull up the website for my students now. Um, My student at my school made the first national logo for Black Lives Matter week. Um, So like, this, this just built a sense of community within my classroom, but also in my school building, where educators who I thought were kind of, you know, unaware of certain things, they became aware. And they they reached out to me like, you know, gymnast, I want to learn more. I want to be, I, I know sometimes like we don't see eye to eye, but like I understand what you, do. see, that's the powerful thing about this. It shakes the consciousness of folks um, our students and staff, and our families, and everything. And if anything, I think the city of Philadelphia has become a better place because of work that we did that first year, and that just led the groundwork to share it with others. And I just want to add one more piece about the Free Minds, Free People conference. I, when we when we presented what we did in Philly, I just remember like there were folks in Oakland, New York, uh, Chicago, Detroit, and they're like, "Yo, we want to do that here." And that was after we already had a conversation with Jesse saying, yo, we should talk about what this we we should do next year because Seattle is interested. So it's just like this organic, authentic kind of thing that just developed that, you know, in hindsight, like I was nervous and I'm not a person that gets nervous, you know, fighting for justice. Um, But to what it is now as an educator. Just means so much, and it just gives the space and the voice to the students, to the voiceless, and I think that was the most powerful thing that came out of this.
0: Thanks, Ishmael. The, um, I mean, there's there's so much to think about. Um, I wanted to, I mean, one thing to point to is the way institutions um, are aversive or the ways they resist. This kind of groundswell uh, by and for the people. Um, I was curious, Dana, maybe you could chime in here to talk a little bit about another institution that I think has very similar patterns um, in higher education. Um, you know, what kinds of challenges, what kinds of success um, have allowed you or um, that you have uh, facilitated and participated in from the higher ed perspective um, around this movement?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking, you know, just listening to Ishmael, like, um, how, you know, it looks different in higher education, the pushback, but it's always still there. Um, but I also just want to like reiterate the energy that Ishmael just shared, right? Like the energy that's come from this week, because I think if anything that, you know, that like overshadows the pushback, right. And that's what kind of keeps this all going. So, um, I just want to, you know, focus on kind of how higher education has, in a sense, always been playing catch up, in my opinion, to the work of the K-12 teachers, um, not only in Seattle, but also Philly and now all of the other locations. Because I think in a lot of ways, even though you tend to associate consciousness raising with higher education and, you know, these university settings that for a lot of faculty members, it took the week of action to kind of shake our consciousness about what was possible. So, um, you know, I kind of showed up to one of the organizing meetings uh, back in, I guess it was 2017 or 2018. It was planning for the second uh, week of action. Um, And it was in Ishmael's classroom. So uh, we, we had a nice setting, but it was kind of really, you know, straightforward. It was just like, hey, there's all these folks who are either grad students or faculty members or adjuncts or whatever that meant. And we've been offering up like our spaces, you know, like university spaces had played a role in the first and the second week of action planning, like where a lot of these community events would happen. But like we hadn't really talked about, like, how do we bring this into our classrooms? How do we bring this onto our campuses in meaningful ways where we're also organizing um, our colleagues, but also our students, our communities, right? Cause campuses are their own little insulated communities to some extent. So, you know, we kind of went into like another room at, at Kensington Kappa and like had a little powwow with some higher ed people and started to kind of just like mirror a lot of what the K-12 folks had done. Like thinking about curriculum that we could provide folks that was higher ed appropriate. Um, thinking about how we could support people in hosting events and organizing others. Um, and it's come a long way. Uh, in that first, you know, week we did something as simple as just having scholars and uh, faculty members sign on and support. Um, but we've since like taken all of that information and created a, a list, of, you know, kind of a coalition of faculty members across the country who are interested in this work. And so, for the first time this year, we actually have started working groups where. Folks are again going on the K twelve demands and mapping them onto higher education. So, what does it look like to have, you know, mandated classes? We have Gen Ed classes all the time, but like, what does it look like to have a mandate of Black history or ethnic studies in higher education? That's something we can do, particularly as faculty with control over curricula. Um, so, you know, we're thinking about what that looks like in terms of campus police um, or anti racist training for. Um, faculty members for staff on campuses. You know, there was a great piece in uh, Spotlight about I'm in the Pennsylvania state system of higher education. um, And there was a great piece um, in a local, you know, news source Spotlight about all the ways in which our black students and other students of color are, you know, um, isolated. And prevented from fully engaging in all the opportunities that our universities provide. Um, so that's something that we have to address. And hopefully, what we're doing over the uh, coming weeks is linking up different faculty members across the country, but also in different regions, and hopefully trying to see how we can not only think about the demands in our own context in higher education, but also what can we do to make those things reality, right? Like, Tamara got an anti racist training together created, what is it, three, four, five, seven days? It's like, it's a ton of work, right? But that's been delivered to faculty, excuse me, to teachers, activists all over the country, and we need to do similar things in higher education. So, I'm hoping that these working groups are uh, the start, and uh, if anyone wants to get involved in that, please uh, get a hold of me.
0: I want to bring us all in, um, we're kind of coming to the, our last kind of segments, and I certainly could talk about this for another 13, 14 hours at least, um, and I know we don't have that kind of time. So in the 13, 14 minutes that we have, um, I want to kind of bring it to the present. Um, We are facing uh, the triple pandemics of COVID-19, state-sanctioned racial violence, and climate change. what does this week, uh, BLM week, um, and movement at schools, um, what does it mean for us nationally um, and, and in Philly? Um, just really thinking about the way forward at this point. Um, and I kind of want to leave it, I'm not sure who would like to chime in, or maybe we could hear from Jesse, um, since we um, haven't have heard from you from, uh, since the, the beginning of, of our segment here.
1: Absolutely. I think it's important to understand that so much has changed since that first day and week of action that uh, because of the hard work, not just of so many educators in the Black Lives Matter at school movement, but racial justice educators and Black Lives Matter activists all over the country who were building this struggle in the down times, in the times when no one had our back, in the times when we were isolated from conversations and told we were too militant, because we kept going and we didn't stop and we were unapologetically black, when Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Tony McDade and so many other names uh, helped to launch this new uprising that broke out over the spring and summer, uh, we are now in a different organizing condition, and it's very true that things have polarized. On the one hand, you have the rise of open, unmasked white supremacists who are more confident than ever, and that's terrifying. We've we've seen that the terror that they have brought our country. But on the other side, we are also in the midst of the reemergence of the Black Freedom Struggle on a level that we have never seen in my lifetime, on a level that that I've only heard stories about from my parents and and read about in books, uh, and we now have the eruption of the Black Freedom Struggle um, right now, and so I think the Black Lives Matter at school now is in the context of uh, this. What the Washington Post called the broadest protest in U.S. history that occurred uh, with in the wake of George Floyd's murder. So uh, I think now our four demands uh, take on a new dimension. Right. Our first demand for uh, ending zero tolerance discipline and replacing it with restorative justice. We know that uh, black students are suspended at some four times the rate of uh, white students for the same infractions and actually black girls are the most disproportionately suspended at like seven times the rate of white girls. Our second demand was for black studies and ethnic studies. And that movement is is uh, blossoming all over the country. People are winning, um, having it in state requirements and schools Uh, And it's you know, there's an incredible struggle here in Seattle that that one mandating uh, getting a department. But it's a long way from actually being implemented in the schools. Right. Our third demand was around hiring more black teachers. You know, since 2002, we've lost twenty six thousand black teachers across the country. And uh, so the problem isn't just that we need to hire more. We need to retain them. The ones that are here instead of pushing them out of the classroom right and then fund counselors not cops was added to the first three demands that we had the original year and that was so important and it helped to build networks of people whose consciousness were raised about this issue and then in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, so many people took the streets. And it wasn't just BLM at school. We can look at the work of dignity in schools and the Advancement Project and Students Deserve and so many other groups that raised this issue. But now cops have been kicked out of schools, beginning in the Minneapolis public schools. And there's an amazing chapter uh, in the book interviewing one of the students that led that. But the St. Paul public schools kicked the police out. The Oakland public schools kicked the police out. Denver public schools, uh, you know, and I'm proud to say the Seattle public schools uh, kicked the police out. And I think that's got to be one of the cutting edges of this movement as it grows, is making sure that uh, we get the cops out of every school in this country.
0: Thanks, Jesse. Tamara, um, Uh, You you had some thoughts?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that this what I would love to say is we are talking, you know, speaking about this large uprising that is happening. We have had over hundreds of uprising across the country since since uh, April. Right. Since the summer until now, we also have the largest number of organizing activists that are still in prison right now. You know, despite the fact that just with the recent people crawling over the Capitol wall, you couldn't find them. But that's a whole different story for another time. There are, we also, I think right now we are finally getting rid of the bubble. So when people tell me that we can only have these conversations when our kids are older, what that code is for, we can't only have these conversations, we can't have these conversations with white children. And the problem with that is that right now, we need to have these conversations from babies on up because, as Black families or families of color, we have to have these conversations with our children. It is a life; it is life or death if we do not have these conversations from the beginning with them. So, the fact that you think that certain families have a choice to have these conversations means that I am set in a classroom where I'm teaching democracy and education, and students are telling me, "Well, that per- Columbus was just a person of his time." Or he could have been just a murderer. Like that is actually what happened. Right. And these are I think this type of this we we can no longer if anybody comes up to anybody and says we are in a post racial society or that happened a long time ago. Then they have to be Ray Charles at this point, because you have to see it. We have had a large demonstration of racism, right? And right now, this is no longer, not that it ever has been, but every 10 years, I like to say, every 10 years, we have to change the way America treats us so that we don't die, right? So that my daughter can live, so that she can wake up and not be stressed out of thinking of like who she has lost in our family to gun violence. Right. And so or not being able to see my friends because they literally disappear because the FBI has scooped them up and we have no idea where they're being held at. Right. These are real things that are happening right now. So for me, it is always um, that the work isn't finished. Like I remember when Philly was celebrating about Biden and Harris's win and I was speaking at a socialist rally (laughs) Of All things. And as I was speaking and I got through the history, um, I started to weep during the history. I started to choke up this. I started to have a visceral reaction to my own words in the middle of the square because I was surrounded by cops who I had just ran into the week before at an end of rape conference. When I ran literally to a Proud Boys rally, literally ran into them on accident and I was in the middle of them. So these are the types of things that what made me realize is on the other side is celebration. In the middle is a little girl punching a Trump down. Over here, there are cops. And what I realized at that moment is the exhaustion that Ella Baker and Septima Clark and all of our ancestors that we stand on must feel. And that this is not just about, um, about uprisings. It's also as much as about how can we heal And how can we take care of us as a community and stop looking outside of our community to be taken care of? You know, it is time for all, because it's not just happening in schools, it is happening in the arts, it is happening in business. It it is the first time, probably in a long time, that everything is, is hitting the fan at the same time, right? And so it is kind of imperative that we, you know, not to talk too much. It's just, to me, it's this emotional imperative and more morality imperative right now that we're in. That's what I wanted to say.
0: We're almost out of time, but Ishmael, I did want to give you a few minutes. Um, I know you had some comments um, to share about
3: our current moment. Uh, Yeah, Um, I think, you know, Tamara said it beautifully, just like the moment that we're in, the time, you know, these are the times that Trial Man Soul, to, to quote Thomas Paine, one of the only founding fathers that I mess with. Um so w- you know, we always advocate student voice. We always say we want to to encourage our students, to uplift them, to really center what their experiences are. And you know, for us, for folks like us, like we don't say that, we practice it. Um and you know, I wanna, you know. And Edwin, I appreciate you allowing me to speak on this, but like, you know, right now, you know, we're in a virtual uh, education environment with the pandemic and teaching in virtual school. Um, So like as an educator, I'm in my class every single day and I'm hearing students complain, oh, well, we're on the screen too long. We don't have enough time. We're getting flooded with work. Um, So here in Philadelphia, I was like, yo, like. Then you should say something about it. You know, just don't complain. You know, be about it. What? Can, how can you bring attention? Um, so the lovely students at my school at Kensington Kappa actually uh, recently went out their way. Uh, first, they did emails uh, to administrators asking, you know, can this schedule be relooked at because they were going they're going eight until three o four with only a half an hour lunch. Um, and then they made their own petition. They started all, you know, it was so, I was so proud of students like actually taking it up and see, this is what it's all about, right? Um, and as a result of that, they were just really ignored uh, by our administration at my school. Um, and so teachers um, that I work with and myself, um, we I'm the building rep at my school. And if anybody's familiar with building rep, it's just like, I represent, you know, the staff, you know, I'm elected at the school level or whatever. Um, we started bringing the issue up for the students uh, to administration. Um, And so much so that we helped organize uh, what are known as town halls to just talk about it with the students. And we were simply told um, that we had an unauthorized town hall and uh, folks are actually got 204. So there's like, and students, a student told me this morning that she got a call at 9.30 last night for from the principal, not to say you're doing a great job, really bringing attention, you're being a student leader, but to say, do you know what your child's doing? That you know, that they felt threatened by the student's email saying that it's messed up that teachers received the highest write up for simply just trying to help them understand what's going on and not really push for a schedule change. And see, like, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? It's, it's, it's not the Black Lives Matter week at school is a way where we encourage folks to gain their voice and then take action. We can talk, talk, talk all we want about equity and justice. But if we ain't living it, if we're not embodying it, then we don't we're not really about it. And I always tell the students that, like, don't see how what people say, see how they move. So tomorrow is my 204 hearing. Um, so I just want to bring that to attention that I'm, I'm sure I have administrators listening to this right now. Um, but this is the reality that educators who are actually about it on the ground are facing every single day. Um, and I, I appreciate that that time and space, but I definitely want to co-sign that we can no longer just wait for somebody to provide justice. We have to produce it ourselves.
0: Uh, quickly in just one minute, um, what is um, what should we be looking forward to in terms of 2021's BLM uh, at school um, events? Um, I know there's a kind of year um, and maybe um, one of you could speak
1: about that. Uh, just real quick, uh, this year in the wake of the uprisings, We knew we needed to expand it from the week of action to what we're calling the year of purpose. And so every month there's a day of action, but maybe even more importantly, there's five reflection questions that we're asking all educators to reflect on their own pedagogy and practice and and organizing and activism uh, in relationship to anti-racist practices. And so the week of action will be the first week of February. We'll have some, Event national events around the book uh, for sure during that week, but we want people to engage in this work all year long.
0: Well, unfortunately, we are at a time. I really want to thank my guests. Uh, Dana Morrison, Ishmael Jimenez, Tamara Anderson, and Jesse Hagopian. Uh, thank you, audience, for listening to and watching Encuentros Políticos, Political Encounters on Usula Media. I want to thank our sponsors, Haymarket Books and Usula Media. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can find me on the web at edwinmayorga.net or on Twitter at EIMayorga or by email at edwin.mayorga@gmail.com. Uh, you can find the show on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Usula Media, or you can download the podcast uh, episodes on Spreaker. Uh, thank you, all of you. Have a good evening. Palante. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.